Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll compare the problems of the federal budget with the problems of a state budget, specifically New Hampshire's budget. Points of comparison include how the budget is put together, where does the money go, how is it raised, are there any institutional restraints, and are there structural issues that affect future policy options? We'll get into all of that and more with our guest, Phil Sletton, Research Director at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, an independent nonprofit policy research organization in Concord, New Hampshire. Phil's been uh, working there since 2016. And then I'll talk with Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson about his issue brief series on the history and future of the Social Security Trust Fund and that uh, series is now available on our website at conqueredcoalition.org. And now let's get started with uh, Phil Sletton. Phil is a New Hampshire native, and I should note he currently serves on the Concord Coalition's New Hampshire Advisory Board. Phil and Av, welcome back to Facing the Future. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Thanks, Bob. You know, the federal budget is on pause for the moment on summer vacation, so we thought it would be a good idea to remind everyone that states have budgets too, and the choices can be just as difficult and just as impactful on constituents as the federal budget. Phil, uh, let's begin by taking a look. You know, where does the money come from? Where does it go? And... Was there anything particularly significant about this year's budget that you noticed? New Hampshire state budget is different than the federal state budget. One uh, one key way, well, several key ways, but one of the key ways is that it is a biennial state budget as opposed to an annual state budget. So uh, the state budget that passed the legislature in June and was signed by the governor took effect in July. That'll be in effect until the middle of 2025, until the end of June 2025. Um, the money, about 30% of the state budget's funding, uh, this uh, budget biennium, and there some federal funds that are outside of the state budget. So think about it as about one in three dollars that fund state operations in New Hampshire come through the federal government. Um, and a lot of that is Medicaid, which is a, f a state federal fiscal partnership to provide health coverage for people with uh, particularly with low incomes or in a particularly vulnerable circumstance. So the, uh, the money that comes from local taxation comes in large part in New Hampshire through uh, business taxes, particularly the business profits tax, which is sort of your typical state corporate income tax, and the business enterprise tax, as well as a sales tax that we have on uh, hotel rooms, uh, rental cars, and restaurant meals, and a real estate transfer tax, a tax on tobacco products, and um, uh, a, a statewide education property tax as well that's devoted to education. 
Uh, and it attacks on insurance premiums, attacks on interest and dividends, which actually the current state budget is um, going to phase out a little bit faster um, and, uh, and end in 2025. So we have a pretty broad collection of revenue sources that fund the state government, but um, that's what's raised. Oh, we also, of course, tax gasoline and we uh, uh, collect revenue from non-tax revenue sources such as turnpike tolling, um, liquor commission sales, because we have our state liquor yeah. stores that now generate you're, now you're into it. Now, now you're yes. into what everybody knows. Knows yes. the, <laughs> and uh, familiar with and uh, and lottery commission sales as well. Both <laughs> of those generate quite a bit of revenue for the state, but most of the revenue go to pay for operations, products, and of course winnings. In the case of the lottery, uh, and uh, so what? Just we talk a lot about federal trends. Uh, other trends in the New Hampshire state budget that you can discern that that become problems down the road. Yeah, so one of the things that the state budget, because it's a two-year state budget, the policymakers have an opportunity sort of every two years to tackle some of the bigger structural problems, either with the state's economy or um, trends that are something that are hard to address in you know one budget cycle or in a smaller piece of legislation. So one of the things that we saw state policymakers really try to grapple with in this budget cycle was the workforce challenge. When I say workforce challenge, I mean a lack of people in New Hampshire who are engaged in the labor force and employed. Um, so we have a pretty severe workforce constraint in the state. Um, for example, in June, there were about 13,500 unemployed people and 45,000 job openings mm. statewide. So there's a big mismatch between the uh, demand for workers that employers have and the supply of workers available. So uh, the state budget did make some key investments in housing and in child care. Those are uh, two large barriers to workforce growth and workforce participation. Um, and they've become quite expensive for a lot of people in the state, um, as well as longer term investments in education and some uh, some investments in the healthcare workforce, particularly through Medicaid reimbursement rates. I'll say just on the housing front, um, you know, housing being one of the biggest costs that households face regardless of their composition. Um, New Hampshire is a small, relatively rural state, and the median home sale price in June was nearly $500,000 here. Again, we don't have a major metro area completely within our borders, and the median home sale price statewide, including up near the Canadian border, right, including that in the statistics, um, was about half a million dollars. Uh, and then median rent and utilities for a two-bedroom apartment was a, a um, $1,764, as measured earlier this year. So that's a lot of money for families to be devoting to housing. It also reflects that there's a const uh, housing constraint that means that what New Hampshire has historically benefited from, which is people moving into the state to contribute to the workforce, especially coming over the border from Massachusetts, there's just not very many options now for people to move into the state because there's not a lot of available housing. And on the child care front, uh, you know, uh, the um, annual price in 2022 for having center-based child care in New Hampshire for a toddler is about $14,200 a year, and for an infant, about $15,300. That's lower than in some states, but it's still a very significant portion of median household income in the state. Av, you want to jump in here? Well, I, I'm feeling all of these statistics personally because, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I have a five-year-old here in New Hampshire and, uh, you know, feeling the cost of, of, of that child care. We're lucky in the sense that uh, at least that child care is available. Um, but uh, we've definitely noticed um, sharp increases in, in, in housing prices in New Hampshire and that you know, the lack of availability of housing um, contributes to an increase in those prices. 
Um, so I, I want to ask, too, which is a, a, a trend that's connected to workforce and some of these challenges that you're that you're talking about, um, be, because it also has to do with with, with the state budget. Um, and, and that is re- with regards to education. So New Hampshire has uh, traditionally been known as one of the states that supports its uh, public education uh, from a state point of view in terms of higher education. Uh, the least uh, among all states in in the United States. At the same time, surprise, surprise, uh, post-secondary education for people graduating from New Hampshire high schools is the most expensive in the in the country, um, and and it's a most the most expensive in the country by a country mile. Like it's not it's not even close. So I wonder. Um, as you look at these numbers, as you look at labor force preparedness, as you look at the high cost of post-secondary education in New Hampshire, um, and you know not enough people uh, to, to to work here, um, you know how do you see these things fitting together, especially in terms of investment from from the state in these things that might you know influence some of these other trends in a positive direction? Yeah, that's a great question because all these all these factors interconnect. Um, so, uh, if we look at K through 12 education, New Hampshire has the smallest percentage of local kindergarten through 12th grade education that is funded by the state of any state in the country. Um, so uh, that doesn't mean that we, our schools are underfunded relative to the average school around the country, but it means we're more reliant on local property taxes. For higher education, um, if you look at our uh, university system, for example, our four-year public institutions in the state, um, the if you measure by um, funding from the state per $1,000 of personal income in the state, if you measure it uh, per capita, if you measure it um, uh, you know, a couple different ways uh, that you can look at it, and New Hampshire ranks at the bottom of sort of all of them uh, on that front. Now, partially related, some of it's just due to geography, but partially related, we are the state with the second highest percentage of our um, uh, seniors in, in high school who are graduating and going on to a four-year college. Um, we are the state with the second highest percentage of them leaving the state to go to that four-year college. So yes, long-term workforce considerations are definitely a part of the picture here. Um, and if there's not an affordable place for people to move back to even after they've finished college somewhere else, and again, we're a small state, so it's easy to go over the border and still be within a reasonable drive of home if you're a student, but if you can't move back home because there's not housing availability, or if you're thinking of starting a family and childcare is prohibitively expensive, all of these things are compounding to um, to suppress workforce growth. And indeed, we see that the workforce in New Hampshire in 2021 and 2020, uh, pardon me, in 2022 and thus far in 2023, uh, the total number of Granite Staters participating in the workforce is lower than it was in 2018 and 2019, pre-pandemic. It has recovered some from 2020, but is not uh, growing robustly. Part of that is long-term demographics because we're a somewhat older state. Um, the state budget did make uh, additional investments in K through 12 education, um, not enough to sort of dramatically change the picture in terms of school finances, but but an additional investment, and did add some dollars for public higher education as well, particularly in the community college system and a little bit more in the university system. But again, likely not changing our overall ranking relative to other states. Yeah, so a quick follow-up on that, too, because I'm glad you mentioned the community college system because it's not just the universities, you know, the graduate uh, universities, you know, University of New Hampshire, your Plymouth State, Keene State. But the community colleges actually play a really important role because a lot of times it's 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 the community colleges that are training these young people uh, to get into careers quicker. 
um, than going to a four-year college and getting your bachelor's in something. Um, and that is even the most expensive uh, com- community college, uh, you know, job preparatory and career pathway programs uh, in the country, you know, com- compared to, to other states. So, you know, it, it, it seems, though, that it's something that's being recognized by lawmakers as something that needs to change. Do you are you finding that as well with the budget priorities? And because that that seems to have a direct impact on, you know, labor force participation, uh, the availability of people to do jobs and, you know, the, the, the availability of getting young people trained and, you know, getting getting higher paying jobs quicker. Yeah, and I think the legislature, um, when it is looking at that as part of the picture, funding for higher education, particularly the, the community college system and components of the four-year university system, there's been some more targeted funding at those. Um, and sometimes there, over the last several budget cycles, there's been targeted funding at um, uh, the workforce, uh, the healthcare workforce in particular, trying to find more um, nursing, getting more nursing degrees and um, you know, licensed nurse assistants out into the uh, out into the labor force in the state. That is something that policymakers have been looking at. I also think that policymakers, even though we have a two-year budget, not a one-year budget like the federal government, I think they are thinking somewhat shorter term in terms of what they are seeing on the ground. That uh, that um, employers are saying it's hard to hire right now, and I have you know, this many open positions right now, I can't find anyone. That's why I think they contributed a fair bit more to housing, which of course is a longer term problem, but you've got to start earlier on that in some ways, Um, not than education, but you've got to uh, put significant dollars in for a relatively capital intensive uh, process. Um, The budget invested an additional 15, uh, pardon me, $50 million in one-time funds into construction projects, incentive payments for municipalities um, to add housing um, and to support other local housing initiatives. And there's two new programs in there, actually, that the state didn't have before. On the child care front, um, there was a substantial boost in reimbursement rates for child care centers that take on um, students from low-income households um, that are enrolled in the state public assistance program. And there's a significant boost in which households, households qualify for that assistance program based on their income. So a three-person household previously would have had to, to get their foot in the door in, for public assistance for child care, had about you know, a little under, a little over $50,000. $50,600 was the cutoff for getting into that program. Um, using 2022 figures, the equivalent now would be $86,000. So a really significant boost in terms of which families have access to child care. And because over the last year about... 15,900 adults have identified that they are not in the labor force because they are caring for a child who's not in school or in child care. And we compare that to the number of people unemployed in New Hampshire in June of about 13,500. Suggests that child care, the lack of availability and accessibility and affordability of child care is a really significant constraint on the economy. So I'd say that policymakers are definitely thinking about education as part of the picture for a variety of reasons. But when they're thinking about workforce, they're thinking about housing and child care first because that's a more acute need. Yeah, absolutely. And just one more quick follow up on that. So in terms of the young people and the statistic you cited about, you know, a lot of them, you know, we have a very high number of young people who are leaving. Uh, in that 18 to 25-year-old range. Some of them come back and, and some of them don't. The counter-argument to that, though, however, is, um, well, we've got people coming into New Hampshire. We've got Yes, we've got a lot of people leaving, but we've got a lot of people coming into New Hampshire in their you know, late 20s and 30s. They come into, you know, maybe they left and they come back. They're, they're boomerangs, uh, certainly the, the case with me. Uh, but, uh, but, but they come back here in their, in their 20s and 30s and to start families and, and to raise kids. So what's really the problem if we're losing young people, but we're gaining people a little bit older? 
maybe it's uh, not so serious a problem for for the labor force and for the labor market and economic growth. What, what's your uh, take on that? Yeah, so you'd hope that people would come back in the same numbers that they have in the past, again, in that late 20s to early 40s age bracket. Um, again, if there's not a place for them to move to, that's a significant constraint. Uh, and, um, and not a place to move to that may be, for example, an attractive school district if they're looking to try to get um, their child in particular school districts because there are certainly perceptions around which school districts may offer um, better education for the tax dollar or not, for example. Um, the uh, Another piece of it that I think is important when we think about New Hampshire in a historical context context is that we have relied on high levels of population growth to grow our economy for the last half century. If you look at our population growth uh, year, decade over decade in the 60s, 70s, 80s, even a little bit in the 90s, although it had reduced at that point, we're talking about 20% or more than 20% population growth in New Hampshire on a decade over decade basis, which means that you know, for every six people in New Hampshire at the end of the decade, only five of them lived in the state, right? If we're talking about, or, or the equivalent of five of them, because there is a fair bit of population churn as well. So we are seeing more people moving into the state, but the overall levels of population growth are quite a bit lower than they were historically. So we shouldn't expect that same kind of workforce growth and population growth um, that we saw in, for example, the 80s or even the 90s. Um, also, you know, the composition of our population is quite different. Now we have a, a state population that is quite a bit older. Um, and uh, many people, about 200,000 people in the state, will be um, moving from the 55 to 64 age bracket to the 65 to 74 age bracket over the next 10 years. 200,000 people in a state of 1.4 million is a lot of people, right? That's a significant portion of the potential workforce that is uh, aging into what you might consider a traditional retirement age. That doesn't mean that everyone in that age group will not be engaged in the labor force. Many of them are. But statistically, there is a drop off in labor force participation. I have a uh, question because this is fascinating. And when I think about how it relates to the federal budget, one of the big problems that we have looking at federal uh, economic growth is workforce uh, participation, uh, immigration. You know, I mean, when you look at the long term economic projections, uh, you know, real GDP growth dwindles um, from, you know, over 2% uh, in past years below to below 2%, around 1.5% or even lower. And most of it is the slowing of the workforce. So it almost seems to me that what you've been describing is a uh, microcosm of what the nation is facing. So it's interesting what is happening here. And in that regard, you know, Maine and Vermont are also, like New Hampshire, among the oldest states in the, in the nation in terms of median age. So you're, you're having to deal with these things. So I'm wondering, is there some sort of competition for workers in these northern New England states? Uh, I mean, are you looking at what Maine is doing? Are they looking at what you're doing as, and in Vermont? Is that some sort of a uh, competition going on there that we might see in, in other places? Yeah, certainly because we are a, a collection of relatively geographically small states, although Maine is as large as Indiana, so it's not uh, not quite as small as we like to think in, in New England. Um, but uh, yeah, the work, the the flow of workers across borders is something that has been a, a component of our economy overall, um, and is is certainly something that if we see wage differentials across borders, people can relatively easily go across borders in a way that we don't necessarily see um, in other states that are larger geographies. Uh, is there a sort of strategic um, 
discussion around how do we uh, attract workers from other states. To a certain extent, the state's Department of Business and Economic Affairs did recently release an analysis looking at what they project to be a a shortage of workers um, over the next several decades, and it's a significant number of workers. Um, And one of their solutions was, let's try to retain people in the state as opposed to having them commute out of state for work. Um, Because historically, um, New Hampshire is a net exporter of Mm -hmm. workers, largely to Massachusetts, largely across the border into metropolitan Boston. So that is something that the state has been considering. Um, That being said, Uh, we actually, if you look at the number of jobs reported by employers in the state, we're at the highest level we've ever been. But the number of people who say they're employed in the state is quite a bit lower than it was uh, prior to the pandemic. So it may be that more people are moving, are um, commuting into the state for work. Uh, Maybe that there are more part-time jobs that are filled and are counted twice, the same person's counted twice in those statistics. So there are a couple still unanswered questions on that. But yes, I generally think that states are looking at a limited supply of workers looking at a limited supply of housing and saying, how do we keep and retain workers here? Higher education is part of that. Um, Housing and child care is also part of that. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I are talking with Phil Sletton, Research Director at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, about the comparisons of putting together the New Hampshire state budget and the federal budget. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I are talking with Phil Sletton, Research Director at the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, about the challenges of putting together the New Hampshire state budget and uh, how those challenges relate to what we do with the federal budget. Uh, So, uh, Av, you want to pick up here? Absolutely. So we went through a pretty extraordinary time in the last few years with uh, the pandemic, but there was a a huge budgetary impact at the federal level, um, but also the states felt it too because there was this billions of dollars, I mean trillions of dollars that went from the federal government to states. A lot of states did interesting things with the money, um, and you know even some had budget surpluses and you know kind of uh, gave tax cuts to to residents and things like that. So uh, I wonder if you can talk about um, the the uh, the post COVID budget picture because now that federal spigot of all this cash uh, during the pandemic is is has been shut off. Um, so what were some of the interesting things that the state was able to do with those federal dollars um, that, you know, and then now that, that that's big, it is off. And now what do we do? Yeah, and that's a great question, because if we count just the COVID-19 related relief and recovery dollars, so not including the Infra- Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, not including the Inflation Reduction Act, but just uh, the COVID-19 related federal legislation up until and including the American Rescue Plan Act. That brought about $17 billion into the state's economy. So I'm counting there the um, uh, Paycheck Protection Program loans, the uh, the economic impact payments to individuals, unemployment compensation, et cetera. Um, $17 billion, I know this is a show that talks about the federal budget, so $17 <laughs> billion isn't that big of a figure in, in that context. But the size of the New Hampshire economy and gross state product in 2019 was $87 billion, right? $17 billion is larger than our two-year state budget, for example. So that's a big infusion of resources into the New Hampshire economy. And that includes to the state government, 
uh, the state government had about two and a quarter billion dollars and still has a fair bit of it, uh, but had about two and a quarter billion dollars in flexible funds between the CARES Act and the American Rescue Plan Act. Um, the American Rescue Plan Act funds can be spent until the end of 2026, and uh, the state has done some uh, infrastructure investments in them, particularly focused on uh, uh, the the um, uh, on water infrastructure, um, purchasing a hospital to help children with behavioral health issues, um, a building a, a veterans uh, care center and housing. Um, there was a hundred million dollar initiative for housing more generally to support housing development in the state. Uh, and there were other, actually other pots of money from the American Rescue Plan Act that infused about $80 million into the state's childcare sector. So all these funds are sort of ongoing. A lot of them have been deployed quickly. A lot of them are still being deployed, but they are one-time funds. And that means that the services that were provided during the sort of pandemic era, if you will, are now not finding the same levels of funding. And that has a macroeconomic effect and effect on household finances. If we look at the percentage of adults in New Hampshire who are reporting it's somewhat or very difficult to afford usual household expenses. Fortunately, we don't have this data set pre-pandemic, but in the summers of 2020 and 2021, it was about one in five adults. Summers of 2022 and 2023, it's about one in three. So a pretty significant increase in the percentage of adults saying it's difficult to afford usual household expenses. Some of that is because of inflation. Some of that is because of things like the advanced child tax credit not continuing, for mm -hmm. example. So these fiscal supports from the federal government have had a big impact on the economy, and we're seeing that that impact is going away. Uh, state revenues have benefited from that big impact on the economy, the recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic recession generally. State revenues have done quite well. In New Hampshire, corporate tax uh, revenues have done quite well, um, in large part because uh, the corporate profits nationally have done well, and that's led to corporate tax revenues rising among all the states um, to varying degrees. And, uh, and as a result, we've been running state budget surpluses, meaning our revenues have come in better than, higher than planned. That has given the state some more fiscal space, but the question is, will that continue? Will that persist, especially on the corporate profit side and um, some of the other revenue sources the state has benefited from, like the real estate transfer tax and the meals and rentals tax? Those have also grown nicely. Whether that will continue is an open question. But the affordable housing issue that you mentioned that that also was impacted by federal COVID funds too, right? Yes, a hundred million dollars uh, went into um, uh, particularly into housing uh, construction and support of uh, the, and supporting uh, municipalities and promoting more housing construction within their communities. Um, there were also separate funds that were dedicated to the emergency rental assistance, and that was about three hundred million dollars that came into the state to help people afford rent. Um, that program has run its course now, even with a little bit of um, funding, additional funding from the state that was appropriate to um, ease the transition at the end. And there's also a homeowner's assistance fund, which was originally about $50 million coming to the state to help people stay in their houses. These, again, are temporary programs that have now gone away. So those renters that were being supported by the emergency rental assistance program no longer have that support. And that changes their ability to spend on other goods and services in the economy. So, so I've got uh, I, I've got a an idea for raising new revenue, why not cut taxes? Now, I'm being facetious, but, uh, but you recently authored a very interesting report uh, on the business profit tax and the business enterprise tax. And it seems that over the last couple of years, the rates have, the legislature and the governor have lowered the rates on those two 
taxes, and yet the revenues have gone up, as you just mentioned, uh, for the corporate taxes combined. And that's a big part of the New Hampshire budget. So we get this argument all the time in Washington about so-called dynamic scoring, whereas if you cut taxes, you end up getting more revenue. Uh, you did a very in-depth uh, brief about it, but you did not validate that premise, uh, as I recall. Yeah, and we really wanted to understand why these corporate tax revenues have gone up, because between state fiscal years 2015 and 2022, combined revenues went up 118%, right? And at the same time, there were tax rate reductions in 2016, 2018, 2019, 2022, and 2023. So is there a causal link there? Um, and we're a small state, you know, maybe we're attracting businesses across the border and that's growing the size of the economy. But we took a look at this uh, in detail and found six key pieces of evidence that identified why there's not reason to believe that those tax rate reductions led to increased revenue or offset the revenue losses associated with them. One is that if you parse between the business profits and business enterprise tax, business enterprise tax revenues went down as rates went down, which is, again, what you'd expect, um, at least in static scoring, that's what you would right, expect. Yeah. Um, two, there's no correlation between the business pro profits tax rate and either job growth or the difference between economic growth in New Hampshire and New England overall. So if we had something special happening in New Hampshire that led to additional economic activity here, certainly enough to grow tax revenues by that much, we'd see it in the economic indicators, and we don't. And part of that is not a surprise because for most businesses, these rate reductions were not significant enough to, for example, add a lot of jobs. Um, you know, a lot of businesses would receive, you know, several hundred dollars per incremental reduction in the tax rates, for example. Um, only the largest ones would see, you know, a substantial um, uh, reduction in their tax liability, and they're already talking about a substantial profits tax base of tens of millions of dollars. Um, third, state corporate tax revenues in other New England states and nationally have also increased substantially. So New Hampshire is not unique in this time period. We've seen that nationwide and in the region, again, to varying degrees, depending on the state, but in aggregate, revenues have, corporate tax revenues have gone up just as fast, if not faster, than they have in New Hampshire. Um, fourth, U.S. corporate profits have surged, and multinational entities pay the majority of business profits tax revenue in New Hampshire. About a little under 60% of the business profits tax base are from businesses that say they have a component that is substantially overseas, right? A significant overseas component, which means that U.S. corporate profits are a pretty good indicator as or can be a pretty good indicator as to what our tax base is because of how the uh, apportionment process is done between the states because many of these are multi-state, multinational entities and uh, New Hampshire is just a small part of their tax liability. Fifth, there's limited evidence that the number of new tax filers in the state is proportionate to the increase in tax revenues. The number of tax filers, so businesses filing taxes in the state, did go up but it didn't go up nearly as fast as the revenues did, which suggests there's something else going on. It's not businesses pouring into the state from across borders. And six, research from other states and nationally does not suggest that reducing tax rates is likely to increase revenue. And that's um, across many different sources of research, um, whether it's the Congressional Budget Office um, and Moody's Analytics or from academic research in various journal articles. It's not clear that uh, it, there's not uh, very much evidence at all that reducing uh, particularly corporate tax rates at the state level is going to increase revenue. And there's not very much evidence that would have a dramatic impact on economic activity either. Yeah, I know. Uh, you know, it's it said at the federal level when 
people sometimes say, well, every time we cut taxes, revenues go up. Well, revenues go up every year, basically. So the question is, did they go up by less than they would have gone up had you not cut the rates? And so unless you're in a recession and revenues go down for that reason, in which case there's a reason that you maybe want to cut taxes to stimulate the economy. But in a normally functioning system, um, except for very few, ex you know, there are very few exceptions where you wouldn't find. You, you quantified that as like between 500 and 700 million roughly. Yes. Uh, of, re of actual revenue loss in that sense. Yeah, and that's uh, accounting for between a zero feedback, so a, a static analysis, zero percent, which, again, some of the academic literature and some of the modeling done by others suggest there would be some feedback. Um, 32 percent is sort of the higher end that's, of the feedback yeah, that we picked. Right, yeah. And that 32 percent, um, you know, accounts for us being a, maybe a smaller state, maybe more likely to attract businesses across borders. Um, but that zero to 32 percent feedback is not 100 percent feedback, right? So between tax year 2015 and tax year 2022, we estimated between $496 million and $729 million of foregone revenue. Um, and relative to, for example, the billion dollars in flexible uh, COVID-19 uh, recovery funds from the American Rescue Plan Act that the state received, you know, that's that's a significant amount of money the state could have collected and used sort of as it desires that it would didn't collect over this time period. Well, it's, uh, it's really a fascinating discussion, uh, I think, because, you know, uh, it, it's not to say that there's no dynamic effect from uh, tax cuts. Most people think that there is. It's just that you can't use that to springboard and say it's such a dynamic effect that, that you actually get more revenues with lower rates. Now, there may be some circumstances where that could happen. I'm not saying it's not, but not as a general proposition. Uh, well, uh, that's all the time we have for this segment. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Av Harris and I have been talking with Phil Sletton, Research Director of the New Hampshire Fiscal Policy Institute, about some challenges for the New Hampshire state budget and how they relate to the federal budget. Uh, and we'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. In this segment, I'm joined by Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson, who has written a three-part series on the history and future of the Social Security Trust Fund. Uh, Steve, uh, you've been studying the Social Security system for many years, both on Capitol Hill and uh, as a senior policy advisor at the Social Security Administration. And we've talked a little bit about your uh, current uh, issue brief series before. We talked about volume one. Um, uh, volume two picks up uh, in uh, around 1972, where some of the uh, initial assumptions, I guess, were, were, were sort of coming to an end, a, a, a golden era, I guess, of uh, easy money for Social Security was coming to an end with demographic changes. Uh, and you trace that, uh, what some of those um, issues were in, uh, in issue brief number two, and then in number three, pick up with uh, the so-called Greenspan Commission reforms in 83. But, but why don't you tell us about the, the 72 issues? Yeah, so, you know, as, as folks may recall, from basically the end of World War II um, until about 1972, there was a phenomenal period of both demographic and economic growth. You had the baby boomers that were born from roughly 1946 to 1964. 
Um, so you had a huge increase in the population. And then by the same token, because of, um, you know, different economic forces, both the fact that the European economies were destroyed after World War II, the U.S. had tremendous economic growth. And so you had very high wage growth, very high population growth. And those factors contributed to sort of a golden era where, you know, the, the program, the Social Security program was growing. Um, but uh, though I should say the, the Social Security payroll taxes and wages were growing. One thing that, that folks may not recall is prior to 1972, uh, there were no automatic cost of living adjustments. There were no ad automatic benefit increases. And so essentially what happened is as the economy grew, uh, there would be a windfall to the program and Congress would tend to vote usually every even numbered year. Uh, they would <laughs> vote to increase benefits on a retroactive basis. They would just simply increase benefits across the board for everybody. But around 1972, inflation had sort of started to, to rear its head. And there was a discussion that, you know, maybe we should enact automatic benefit increases. And so essentially what happened in uh, in 72 is that they, the Congress passed an amendment uh, ostensibly to provide automatic cost of living adjustments based on inflation, you know, what are known as COLAs today. Uh, unfortunately, there was a flaw in the formula. The formula didn't work the way it was supposed to. The other problem, of course, is that by 1972, the baby boom had come to an end. Now, despite the fact that the baby boom had ended and uh, they enacted this flawed formula, they continued to use the, the more optimistic demographic assumptions. So it looked like what they were doing was affordable. But as they proceeded into the decade of the 70s, it became obvious the baby boom was over. It became obvious that what, what, what we now call stagflation, where inflation was rising faster than wages. So the program was going in, you know, into, into deficits. And so in 1977, they fixed the flawed formula. Um, they enacted a, a higher payroll tax increase to take effect in 1990 uh, of 12.4%, which is the current rate. And one thing people don't realize is the current rate that exists today was actually placed into law back in 1977. And while at the time, the 12.4% seemed like it might be enough, uh, when they fixed the formula and economic growth continued to perform as it did, the system was again out of balance. And so by 1983, they were forced to uh, to, to address the, the shortfall again. Now, the shortfall was actually temporary because the 1990 tax increase had not yet taken effect in 1983. But when it did take effect in 1990, it produced these huge surpluses that we saw throughout the most recent decades. So... Uh... In the 70s, we saw the sort of the crumbling of the optimistic assumptions about demographics and the system trying to adjust to that uh, and, and not entirely successfully. So you get to, as you said, you get to 83 and and the things that they had done were, you know, not sufficient to uh, keep the, the trust fund solvent. So. 83 then was another seismic year for Social Security because of the changes made in the so-called Greenspan Commission. And you write about that in issue brief number three. And the thing that really stands out at that, to me anyway, is that perhaps you could say they overcorrected uh, for the uh, adjustments, the shortfall that they had, and produced this enormous surplus. And uh, that was you say unanticipated. Yeah. So, you know, you basically had two issues. You had 
the program, because of stagflation, uh, it was paying large cost of living adjustments, but wages weren't growing fast enough to, to pay for them. And so you had this temporary shortfall between this, you know, the late 70s and the early 80s. But because they had already legislated this big tax increase that would take effect in 1990, you know, had they taken some small measures at that point, they they could have you know sort of gotten through the temporary shortfall and the program would have gotten back on track in, in 1990 uh, when the tax increase took effect. But the one thing that they did in addition to that is when they looked at the program over a 75-year period, they said, well, you know, we've got these near-term shortfalls and we're going to take care of that with some changes. They, they, for example, delayed the cost of living adjustment. They started taxing benefits. So they made some short-term changes that boosted the surplus, plus the payroll tax uh, increase took effect. But when they looked out in the long run, they still had these big deficits. And the one thing that Congress did is they said, well, you know, we're going to raise the retirement age. And so at the time, the t- retirement age, the normal retirement age was 65. And so they voted in uh, 1983 to raise the retirement age. But because the problem, the, the demographic problem didn't really a- affect the program until the, the early 2000s, they delayed the increase in the retirement age. So the retirement age actually just this year is finally finished going up to age 67 for people who turn 62. So essentially, they voted in 1982 to raise the retirement age, you know, 20 years or 40 years in the future. Um, so it was obviously gave people plenty of notice. But of course, what that did in terms of the short-term surpluses and slightly reducing the long-term deficits, but not eliminating the deficits in the long-term, they created this phenomenon where the trust fund was projected to build up to some enormous, originally the estimates were you know $12 trillion in trust fund balance. And then of course it would be depleted so that by the time you got to the 2050s or roughly 2060, that trust fund would all go away. Now, of course, since then, you know, there have been changes in the economy and changes in demographics, and that trust fund exhaustion date has moved forward. And so now here we are in 20, you know, 2023, looking at a date at somewhere around the 2030s. Uh, so we're now, you know, about 10 years out from trust fund exhaustion. And that uh, that really, really uh, reinvigorated a debate about what to do with the trust fund surpluses. I mean, they, they may not have intended to create them, but once they did, they had all this excess payroll tax money coming into the system and uh it it you got back to these debates about are the politicians raiding the trust fund are they funding the rest of the government through social security uh and, yeah right uh, yeah right i mean you know we saw you know as i wrote about in the first paper you had all of these debates in the 1930s about what to do with this big trust fund and the original idea was that you would pay down the national debt now what happened of course in the 80s and the 90s is we again had the big trust fund. And the argument was, well, if we're going to use this money to pay down the debt, or as, as uh, former Senator Patrick Moynihan from New York wanted to do, he said, look, if, if you're not going to use the money to pay down the debt, just give it back. Just cut the payroll tax, give the money back to people. And in the future, when we need the money to pay for the baby boomers and the, the demographic changes, we'll just raise the payroll tax in the future. Of course, nobody liked, you know, well, a lot of people like the idea of cutting the payroll tax, but the notion of having to raise it again later was <laughs> like, they didn't want to go along with that. So as a result, we just said, well, look, we're going to build up the trust fund and hopefully the money will go to pay down the debt. Now, as people recall, we, we didn't pay down the debt. The debt has been rising. Well, actually, there was a brief period from 98 to 2001 where the debt did go down a little bit. But essentially, for the past you know 40 years, we've been increasing the debt. So the argument that we're going to use the Social Security surplus to pay down the debt 
when the debt was rising, people didn't buy that. They said, look, you guys are just borrowing the money and spending it. You can't very well help us pay for the future benefits if you're spending the money and the debt's rising. And so, you know, essentially you had a big replay of the debt uh, of the debate that we saw back in the 1930s. It was the same. Well, there's a there's kind of a self-validating argument that uh, people make that uh, the trust fund surplus actually does help pay future benefits because even if the debt is rising, whether the debt is rising or falling, it substitutes for debt that the government would otherwise have incurred. And thus the economy, the, uh, the nation is in a better fiscal position than it would be because of the Social Security surplus. So we shouldn't worry about it. You take yeah. on that argument pretty, pretty frontally, I would say, in this issue. brief. Yeah, no, the, 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 the economists, they went from arguing we're going to pay down the debt and we're going to save all this money on interest and that's going to help us. But then when the debt kept rising, instead of saying we're paying down the debt, they're just saying, well, we're not paying it down. It's just think how much bigger it would be if we didn't use the Social Security surplus. So it's sort of like, you know, but, but when you start looking through that argument, you realize that it doesn't hold up to much scrutiny, you know, because essentially, you know, every time Congress would enact the earned income tax credit or, you know, the, this, the deduction for the self-employed or the deduction or the, the tax credit for employers of tipped employees, We've reduced income taxes numerous times to offset the higher payroll taxes. So it's sort of hard to argue that the higher payroll taxes are paying down the debt when we're using higher payroll taxes as an excuse to cut income taxes. So, you know, that again, the, the argument just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. Well, you can get all the details about it, about that and, and other aspects of the Social Security Trust Fund by looking at Steve's issue brief series on the Concord Coalition website, ConcordCoalition.org. That's all the time we have for this week. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Thanks for joining us. And I'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. Facing the Future.